This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart, as always. A bit of a Christmas episode going on. Um, <laughs> Mo, six points from six, mate, since we last recorded. How we feel? Very good, very good. That doesn't happen very often. So, yeah, um, I think there's been a lot of um, maybe angst and a lot of energy expended on how we got those six points. But the fact of the matter is we are, as you say, six points richer and feeling a lot better about life going into Christmas. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of them periods where there's a game every three days. So there's there's plenty to talk about at the minute. <clears throat> um, obviously, we played last night. We are recording on the Thursday at the minute. and. I suppose the title race as well has t- taken a bit of a turn, hasn't it? I think people are starting to realise that uh, Manchester City just don't look as imperious, maybe. I think that's fair to say so far. 30 points, I think they're on Liverpool, they're on 34, Arsenal on 36. So I think there's a conversation in that. But, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we can touch on m- predominantly last night while also throwing in the odd little talking points of, of Fulham, really, whenever it's relevant. But how did you feel... Um, going into Sheffield United, I personally, I've said this a few times this week, I felt it was going to be quite a sticky, um, you know, not a particularly enjoyable watch. And I think if, if it was pretty close to that, to be honest for me, it was close to what I expected. No, I agree. I think I'd say I'd flag this game up as the toughest of the three for a lot of reasons before uh, the management situation at Sheffield United came into it. And to be honest, I felt like the players approached it with that in mind as well. They 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 played the game like they knew it was going to be tough. And there were times when they made it tough themselves, but it was very much a performance where they were absolutely willing to roll up their sleeves and dig in and get the job done. And in some ways, it kind of puts the previous performance into other perspective because we don't talk about complacency a lot in this Liverpool team, um, but I feel like there's times when they take their eye off the ball and when you see the way that they attacked that Sheffield United performance and the way they were so resilient, we're going to talk about Virgil, obviously, but he embodied that more than anyone. But when you see the way that they were so focused in that game, you can kind of start to understand, well, maybe they had taken their eye off the ball a little bit on Sunday against Fulham and thought, we just need to get through this because that's the test. But they passed both of them, however they did it. Yeah, well, the, I think they passed both tests differently. Um like if we if we do go back and touch on Fulham really quickly, I I felt and I, I've said this on the Anfield Wrap this week. I I felt a lot of it was just due to the goalkeeper. If I'm honest, I think that's I, I'm I'm notoriously harsh on on keepers and um, centre backs usually. Mm-hmm. But and I maybe maybe I'm just comparing them to Allison, which is basically unfair. But I I think two of the first two that Fulham score out of the three on a normal day when everyone's fit for Liverpool, I think they just get saved. And and Liverpool probably won out 3-1 winners, really. But um, Kelleher conceded two. You can put it down to Rust. You know, I've got, I don't think it's necessarily he's just a bad keeper. He, but he's, he's not. I don't. I also don't think he's the level that Klopp suggests. I think a lot of that is to big him up in the transfer market, to be honest. Well, to big him up in the transfer market, yes. But... While I do agree that the keeper was an issue against Fulham, I do have some sympathy because I think the issue isn't only with him. It's with the reaction of the defenders to him. 
And so the indecision around some of the situations caused by the fact that these guys are used to Alisson, who is so imperious. And I always felt before Kelleher, when we knew Alisson was injured, but before Kelleher started this run, I always said it's always dependent on the defenders to kind of bridge that gap in um, quality that we lose from Allison to Kelleher because we've still got fantastic high-quality defenders who should be able to make Kelleher's job easier. And I don't think we did that against Fulham, and I definitely think we did that against Sheffield United. So, yes, I think if you look individually at the goals, yes, uh, it's always bad when the ball goes through keeper's legs. Um, I think the second one in particular. Although it was interesting what Allison himself had to say about that. He put that partly down to the philosophy of the goalkeeping coaches and what we're trying to get them to do. Yeah. Maybe he's trying to protect his mate. Who knows? I think he probably is to a certain extent. But the fact remains that I, um, Kelleher can't imagine that um, magically become as good as Allison in three weeks. But the defence in front of him can maintain their high level that mean that Kelleher's level is good enough. And I think that was the difference we saw between Fulham and Sheffield United. If you think of those three Fulham goals... I think all three of them were scored from like within the six yard box, very, very close. So yeah, yeah. as a defensive coach, you are saying, why are we allowing them three shots that close to our goal? So yes, Kelleher is an Allison. I think that's very obvious to everyone, but everybody plays a part in making sure he's able to be good enough. Yeah, well, I, I think um, if you look at... The goals that we that we conceded, obviously, I think the obvious caveat that I probably should have included in there is before you ever look at the goalkeeper, the obvious caveat is always, ideally, just don't allow the shot to happen in the first place. So I completely agree with that. But then at the same time, it's, it is the Premier League. You, you're going to allow a certain amount. Um, it's almost unavoidable to an extent. And, and Fulham created chances with about 1.2 expected goals. Obviously, Liverpool conceded three. Uh, which isn't great. Um, I think they had five shots on target, obviously three of them find the net. Um, and I think it's been an interesting couple of days on that front, actually. I, I tweeted this the other day because Manchester City conceded three over the weekend. Edison was largely a fault for them uh, against Spurs. And in during the week, midweek, Arsenal conceded three against Luton. And David Rea was really weak so it's interesting that all three title challenges right now have basically weak goalkeepers in terms of shot stopping um but liverpool's <laughs> going to get tackled because allison will come back hopefully around christmas time but i think crucially as like we get towards the end of the season that will play more of a part i mean like edison to be fair to him has obviously proved he can win a title mm. but i think arsenal in particular uh, David Raya really looked. I mean, all three goals conceded from set pieces, and one of them in particular, he just kind of gets knocked over, and it's yeah. it's you know, it weren't even given as a foul, and that that is saying something in the Premier League because if a goalkeeper gets touched, it's like the police arrive at the ground or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, he needs to. Arsenal have got a, a problem there, and it's it's a big problem it's, going for the title, a, and a problem of their own making, which I keep saying because it's almost. I understand the sentiment behind wanting to have strong competition in every single position, including goalkeeper. But they, you can never, ever point to a situation where that's proven beneficial for the team. Never. Do you know never what, though, been I, beneficial. 
it, it's tricky because I I actually agree with the the premise of the move that he's done in terms of being that ruthless with a, a position that is so vital in terms of getting results. I think the problem is rather than get, upgrading a Ramsdale to an Allison, he's kind of gone from Ramsdale to to Raya, and there's just not a lot of evolution there. So you've no. gone through the trouble of all these narratives for the sake of a really marginal upgrade, really. It, it'd be different if he could land about Allison. Then I'd have been in favour of it, but I think maybe he'll be looking at it and thinking, I thought Raya was better than this. Well, Raya probably was better than this at Brentford when he didn't to have be fair, I thought I, I thought Raya was better. I, I, I'm a fan of Raya, to be fair. Like, well, but... I think about it from Raya's perspective. It's not really helped him either in the situation, yeah. the way that he's kind of parachuted him in. And we think about Ramsdale and where he was within the squads. He was very much the leader of that team last season. So as much as quality-wise, you can say, yes, an upgrade was necessary. The other thing about it is, like I say, the effect on the rest of the squad and how it looks. Because what Arteta has done now is he's backed Raya as his man. He said, look, this is the guy who I think is going to lead us forward. So he's made a few mistakes here and there, and it hasn't really affected them. Now it's starting to be more in the game. Like you say, that Luton game, it was the game of a, a goalkeeper who didn't really know what he was doing. Or he didn't really feel confident in himself, even though, like we say, he has ability. So you get yourself into a situation now where if he is going to be as ruthless as we say he is, then he has to say Raya's not playing up to it and Ramsdale needs to come back in. But he's not going to do that because in his mind, that undermines his original arrest. So he's backed himself into a corner, basically. Uh, and yeah. It's... It's difficult when we're trying to talk about Kelleher and the clear um, difference in quality between him and Allison. You've got to remember everybody else. Like, are any of the mistakes he made at Fulham worse than the mistakes Raya made? No. Are they worse than the mistakes that Andre Anana's made in the last month? No. And you have to think about confidence within a young player. So as much as we can be uh, critical in certain areas where he doesn't match up, we've got to keep it in context. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, if we if we touch on Fulham a little bit more, and actually one thing we obviously have to have to mention is the the, the quality of the <laughs> the four goals made. Um, absolutely crazy. I mean, I I was on the ground, and when the McAllister one went in, in particular, there's a certain sound that you hear in an English ground when a goal goes in, and this yeah. this sound was different. This sound was like a like a sound of shock as opposed to a sound of celebration because it, he really caught it. I think it's about 40 yards out or something like that. Um, what a strike. Yeah, and what a way to get your first goal because you know he would have been thinking about that. Everyone else has scored. All the other new boys have got a goal and he's still waiting for his. And yeah, um, shots from outside the box seem to be back on as a thing in Liverpool 2.0. And I'm here for it because clearly we're quite good at it. We've got that many players who have the quality to be able to make it effective. And yeah, like you say, there's nothing better than seeing one of those hit the back of the net. And the confidence it gives everybody, I think, was really important for getting over the line eventually. It was almost like there's no way we're going to lose after doing all that. Uh, but yeah, I loved the um, one day goal of the month, goal of the day competition, goal of the month competition, whatever you want to call it. Well, it's interesting that you should say that actually about um, the long shots because I actually had a look at it on the back of the game and I'm not sure whether this is good or bad, to be honest. I mean, it's technically bad, really, from a day's perspective, but 
So far this season, Liverpool, there's only one side in the whole division who are averaging um, an average shot distance that is further away than, than Liverpool. And that's Sheffield United, who are going down. <laughs> um, Liverpool's average shot is about 18 yards out. Um, Sheffield United, 18.5 yards. And for a bit of perspective, the best in the league is Brentford on 14.8 yards. Um, so Liverpool are joint, <clears throat> joint 19th, basically, with, with Fulham, 18 yards out. Last season, I think it was about... 16 and a half yards and Liverpool ranked about um I think fifth in the league or something like that. So you're talking marginal stuff to be fair. You know, there's not a lot there's not a lot in it. And I did look at the biggest culprits and the biggest culprits it's interesting. <laughs> it's it's interesting because last season the they basically weren't there because one of them's Sobuslai, one of them's McAllister, one of them is Harvey Elliott, funny enough, and the other is Trent. And Trent obviously is accustomed to playing as a right back. Now he's playing further forward as a bit more of a midfielder. So I suppose this is kind of a product of um, getting midfielders in who actually want the spotlight as opposed to the, yeah. the lads we had before. And also, I think there's another thing in common with all those four lads you mentioned. Uh, they all scored from distance. By the way, the one up, uh, Harvey at Wolves, I'm definitely giving it to him. I don't care what the goals <laughs> panel say. That's his goal. They've all scored. So it's not even a case of these are fanciful shots, the shots where we haven't got any idea, so we might as well take a shot. These are players in position, confident that they can get the ball into the goal from that area and doing it. Like, I think we've got five goals from outside the area this season already. And I think last season, I believe we had eight the whole season long. So... It's a difficult one when you say, is it a good tactic, is it a bad tactic? Because it really does depend upon individual situations. Because there have been times when we've been um, maybe slow, a bit turgid, a bit lacking focus in a game. And then you start to see players taking pot shots and you're thinking, well, that's not the best option. I think there are times when we're taking shots now when they genuinely are the best option. And that's been proved by the ball flying into the net. Yeah, I must say, I think obviously Trent, in my opinion, scored two, by the way. Uh, yeah. But he he's had a really good week. Um, he, he seems to be stepping up of late. He seems to be coming into form just as the kind of tricky period comes in where it's, mm. you know, there's a game every three days and that. But I thought he was our best player against Fulham. I thought he was really good against Sheffield United as well in, in what was a sticky game. And I think whoever we played before that, I think he was good in that as well. Um, so he's really developing into this kind of <clears throat> authority during the game on the pitch for the team and things. And um, it's obviously good to see. But when it comes to this kind of midfield chat, there's a lot of context in there, I think, that uh, that's, that always tends to be lacking when it comes to talking about him playing as a midfielder full-time. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, I agree. I think, and it's really understandable in some ways that that context is lacking because it is such an all-encompassing conversation, not just from in terms of his career path as a player, but in terms of what it means for the team. Because this is the thing, it affects so many other players, but so many other elements of the team. You think about your passing structure, you think about the way we attack 
everything is changed. Everybody around him is doing something different. Uh, it was really interesting listening to Joe Gomez talk about how he's uh, approaching the right-back role in comparison to when Trent's there and the things that he's been asked to do because he is sometimes inverting, probably more than most of us realise or would like, but it's a situation about knowing when to do what. And the change from Trent from a right-back to a midfielder was always going to have to be a slow evolution because of how much we're asking him to do. And the, I think there's a certain element of people just want to be there already, but we need to make sure all of the different elements are in place. And the other thing about it that often doesn't get spoken about is how beneficial it is to actually have four midfielders on the pitch and technically only start with three. It's like yeah. you're getting an extra midfielder into the pitch. That's kind of part of the point. And yeah, the yeah, whole exactly. trend being it's just a midfielder takes that away. And I mean, in terms of the space that he gets, it takes something away from it. So I'm still not 100% convinced that the best version of this team isn't with Trent becoming a midfielder as opposed to starting for it as a midfield. But by the same token, I do think there are certain indicators along the way that make me think that we are going to get there eventually. Yeah, I think for me, I, I think he could play as a midfielder perfectly fine. I think he's definitely good enough to do it. <clears throat> I don't think it would hinder his game. I don't think it would limit his ceiling. If anything, it could do the opposite, to be honest. So I'm definitely in favour of it in that sense. But then you throw in the context of the squad. Now, <clears throat> I think Klopp would do it if Kyle Walker played for Liverpool, like 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 Southgate. I think Klopp would do it. And we'd see Trent in midfield if Kyle Walker was there for Liverpool. And I think the option to buy a version of a Kyle Walker was there in the summer. Um, but rather than getting a right-back, Liverpool went and bought four midfielders, mm-hmm. kind of clogging the engine room, really. And that, for me, was quite telling. Um, because if Trent does move into midfield, you still need a right-back on the pitch. And the right-backs we have are Conor Bradley and Joe Gomez. I don't know about you, but I don't want to sound harsh, but I don't want Joe Gomez playing every single game for Liverpool, like I want Trent playing every single game for Liverpool. Um, so, and on top of that as well, even if Trent was to play in midfield and Gomez was to play as a right-back, we still need that right-back to start inverting. Because we, mm-hmm. we, we need that kind of four, that presence of four bodies in the middle of the park. Liverpool, under the radar, right? Liverpool have always had that. Liverpool had that going back to the original team because the four that we established in the middle was the three midfielders and Firmino was a false nine. Yeah. And then when Firmino kind of comes out the team and Nunes comes in, Nunes runs away from the midfield. So, before we knew it, we had three in there, started suffering from it. Now the fourth is getting added again, but just in a different way by Trent talking inside. So Klopp yes. has always shown an interest in four midfielders, four four bodies in the middle of the pitch. So even if Trent was to start playing in midfield full-time, we would still need our right-back or, or the left-back to, to tuck inside. And yeah. um, finding that profile is tricky, and Liverpool could have targeted that profile over the summer, but didn't. So I think we've maybe missed the boat in terms of a permanent switch for Trent mm-hmm. to do it. But I do think we'll see it situationally like we did against Fulham for about 
you know, for a couple of minutes. Yes, no, I agree 100%. I think the shape and the implications of the shape are as important as getting Trent's qualities into a more uh, effective area. And in terms of the recruitment, it's so fascinating because I would go back to our summer chats and we were talking about this then and talking about what it meant for the profile of right back we were looking for. And the idea of someone who could do all of the things, uh, another Kyle Walker, for example, Kyle Walker, the reason Kyle Walker's still playing for Manchester City in England at his age is because there aren't very many Kyle Walkers around. Uh, and <clears throat> ironically enough, I think one of the guys who I thought could grow into that was Julian Timber, who signed for Arsenal and probably got injured. Funnily enough, mate, I, I said Timber during the week for Redman TV. That he, he was my example. I think if Liverpool wanted to do that, he would have been a player who, who, who could have done it to a high level. But obviously he went to Arsenal. Yeah, and, and, and because that put, we've seen Liverpool in the past, if they don't think that there's a player of the quality to do everything they want, they would rather not, they'd rather maybe wait and see if they can find a solution from within until the, the perfect solution uh, materialises. That doesn't always work, as we've seen, because sometimes those perfect players and suddenly playing for someone else. Like another name who I've always been interested in over the course of the last couple of seasons as a right-back is uh, Ivan Fresneda was playing for Valladolid and doing really well against some of the big boys in Spain. And he's decided for Sporting Lisbon in the summer. So it's like, well, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to sign him now if you're thinking about signing him now. And this is it. There is... The Portuguese I know. It's almost almost like they know something or they're more willing to take (laughs) the risks than we are. But... In terms of what we want from that guy, you're right. It does need to be someone who can still do the things we're asking Trent to do now, even if in terms of the creation element, Trent's going to be there. So they're not going to be asking them to ping um, 45-yard inverted swinging crossfield balls. But they are still going to need to be a presence in the midfield, as you say, and a defensive presence in the midfield. So it's a tricky one. And I think... The way that, as I said earlier, it's going to be a slow evolution means that Liverpool can take their time and work out who they think is the best player. Another fellow I think is interesting is their Gertrude at Feyenoord. His profile is he could play pretty much across the back line and he's played defensive midfield. He's quite strong. Not 100% sure about his passing ability, but again, like I just said, he might only need to play a five-yard ball to Trent every now and then. So... They'll be looking. That that will probably be maybe number one or number two task in the in the um, inbox over the course of the summer. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I suppose another talking point that's kind of emerged <clears throat> over the past couple of days, as always, is is Darwin Nunes. Uh, he come on yesterday against the. Hair. <laughs> I'll take that reaction immediately as like the kind of thing that sums him up really. Uh, but yeah, he come on late against uh, Sheffield United and was just an absolute nu- nuisance. I felt I, I I loved watching him. I think he's crazy uh, in a good way now. Um, but when you check Twitter, you and I understand why. Don't get me wrong, but you you always see, in my opinion, too much of a focus sometimes on is on the finishing path. There's so much more to football. I know it's important, yeah. and I do get to points with him where I say, no, come on, you've got to put that one in. Like I, I got to that point with him, I think, against Fulham, 
when the ball yeah. gets played over to Salah, Salah heads it down perfectly into his path, yeah. and he misses the ball completely. You know, in, in in my head with that one, I was thinking you got to hit the target there, mate. And ideally against Sheffield United, the one v one that he gets, I think a really cultured finisher probably goes for a little dink over, over the keeper there, maybe. Mm. Uh, but Nunes Nunes hit the keeper, and it results in these kind of finishing narratives being the main focus when. I'm always keen to stress. I feel like I had a, a public duty that I've got now, to be honest, mate. I feel, I, feel like I've got a, I feel like I've got a stress. Listen, yes, the finishing's not great, but he is a menace. He is a nightmare for the opposition defences, believe me. And just by him being on the pitch, things happen around him because he's there. He's like a... He's just like a wrecking ball, really. The Tasmanian devil. Yeah. Well, you should have said the Uruguayan devil. That kind of fits my... <laughs> I feel sorry for him because I think the thing that Darwin Nunes wants more than anything is to have two games where no one's talking about him and Liverpool win and it's fine and he's just another member of the squad because I agree that there's always a discourse and I think that it doesn't necessarily help him. The way that we see him on the pitch, the way that some of the chances that he misses, he's clearly in his own head. Some of them are just, like you say, with the finishing, it's just part of his natural game that needs to evolve. I think about the one that hit the bar um, against Fulham as opposed to the one that you were mentioning. Um, But then there are times when it looks like he just needs to chill out a bit. Conversely, one thing I always say about Nunes is that when he's had a game where he's disappointed or he'd come off the pitch disappointed as he undoubtedly would against Fulham, the next game, you you see it. You see him taking that drive into the next game. You see the reaction. And the way that he performed on Wednesday night, he did exactly what that game needed. He stretched them when they were looking to be more adventurous and try and get an equalising goal. He gave them that risk and reward that meant that they couldn't really go for it. They never really got up ahead of esteem because they were always worried about what was going to happen the other way. And when you look at the the, the way that he created the second clinching goal, I mean, obviously he had to give the ball away first because that's just what he does. But then <laughs> if he'd have got that tackle wrong, it's a second yellow card. Yeah. And it's a big um, a big chance for Sheffield United to pump the ball up the other end with one man less to try and get that equaliser. But no, he gets the tackle perfectly. Yes, his leg goes around the defender's legs, but he doesn't actually make contact with them. He kind of gets there, gets the ball out and comes back again. It's unbelievable how he's able to do it. And then once he's done that, he gets his head up and he sees Sobber's line space and he plays the perfect ball for him. And having the presence of mind to be able to win the ball back and distribute it to a man in space at a crusher moment is what we want from doing this more and more. Those are the kind of things that as he's grabbing him around the head and walking him off the field, Klopp's saying to him, yes, more of that. This is what we want. Forget all the other noise. You're doing this. You're good. Yeah. I think one of the frustrations that I have with the, the finishing thing is if you actually think of a player taking a shot, and let's say his, his effort goes slightly wide of the post or whatever, the, the difference between you, if finishing is all that matters to you, then the, the difference between you being happy and sad with a player's performance is is, gen, is inches for, for, from one effort. And I, I just, I think that's way, way too almost um, fickle in terms of your opinion. Like you, you, you've got, op, that that's opposite ends of the scale based on, you know, you're talking inches sometimes. Um, 
And like say for example, so far this season, this is a base this is courtesy of um Andrew Beasley, um, friend of the show. He's appeared on a few times actually. Mm-hmm. But he tweeted a few days ago, uh, Nunes has now hit the woodwork from six up to big chances this season. Now, hitting the woodwork is as close as you can get to scoring a goal, right, without the ball actually going in the net. So imagine how marginal the difference is there between Nunes mm-hmm. having six more goals. It's 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 so marginal, and that's why I kind of just focus on him getting the shots and almost think, like, the finishing part just kind of happens sometimes. Like, hitting the woodwork six times, mate, like, that's just unlucky. I mean, there's not, there's not a lot you can put on that, and sometimes they will go in, and when they all go in, people start, the narrative flips completely, and people start suggesting the clinical Nunes has arrived, and, and all this stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. So it's, it's a delicate one, I think, always. It is, and and the hitting the woodwork is the kind of most obvious example of a, being a game of inches, and I think there was a stat that I saw about, from Squawker, saying that he's the second fastest player to hit the woodwork 10 times in the Premier League era and the fastest player is uh, Luis Suarez and if you think back to early on in Luis Suarez's career there's been lots of talk about the comparisons between the two but it is something that you keep going back to and there was a period of time when Suarez was just a little bit away just a little bit away just a little bit away and then he he, I mean I was going to say he calmed down he didn't calm down that's not Luis Suarez (laughs) Uh, but he just Bound his his range, as it were, and suddenly they were flying in from everywhere. I'm not saying that that's going to happen for Darwin Nunes automatically. What I'm saying is, is that hitting the woodwork in and of itself is not an indication of someone who's uh, never going to get it right. So you're right, being in the position, taking the shots, is still the most important thing. And for Nunes, I do think calmness is going to help him if he can just feel a little bit more calm, feel like, as you say, he's still able to have telling contributions in games, in the games where it's not going in, then he'd be okay. I mean, dare I say it, most of them missed some pretty good big chances in the last couple of games. And without <coughs> it becoming a talking point, most of them will say the reason for that is because I'm the top goal scorer so far in this team. And you know what? He'll be right. But by the same token... There should be a time when Nunes will be able to say the same. And I think that time is going to be in January. So if Nunes is fit, firing them in and in a purple patch of form in January, all of this will be forgotten. Yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting for the point where, where these efforts, he starts doing basically exactly the same thing, but they start just trickling in. You know, they might bounce off the post. He might just go through a keeper's legs. That's all it takes, and then everyone the narrative flips completely, and everyone starts suggesting that he's the next Torres or something. <laughs> and it's I, it, it, it's annoying. Um, go on. It is annoying. I have to say, um, to be kind of fair to some of his detractors, I was hoping that we weren't still having the same similar conversation by this point. I think yeah. that's a reasonable thing to say. Yeah. considering where we were when he signed. I think most of us were hoping that he would have got there by now, and he hasn't yet. And that means he's going to probably need a bit more patience. I don't think this is going to turn into a long-term Naby Keita situation where the projected player in our minds is always going to be out of reach. I think there is a situation where he gets to that point, but it might we have to be a little bit more patient with him than maybe we'd have anticipated. 
Yeah, I think everything else is actually pretty much there now. I'm actually surprised that he's added the kind of link and play um, elements before the finishing elements, to be, to be honest. I thought the finishing element would come first, and then over time he'd start, we, we, we'd start seeing him bully defenders and, and knock them down from, from aerial balls and things like that. But so far, it's been the other way around. But in terms of his numbers, because we, we might as well attach his numbers to this, um, I did get asked during the week from Paul Hart. So if you're listening to me, thanks for this. But he, he did ask me and just say, uh, said, um, what, what are Nunes' numbers like, basically, in terms of his XG com- compared to his goals scored? Because that's what we would typically use on this show. And we, I suppose we haven't really applied it to Nunes. So I went and checked. And since he signed for Liverpool in the Premier League, Champions League and Europa League, he scored about eight goals less than expected. So he's underperforming, I think, by about 7.6 goals, mm. which is, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not great. There's no way of framing it. <laughs> Um, that that would suggest it's it's too small of a sample size to say it definitively, but that would suggest he's not the best finisher. Um, in comparison, like a lot of players out there are mostly average finishers, so they end up scoring roughly what they're expected to score. Mm-hmm. Some players score a lot more than that. Um, they're the best finishers, like a Lionel Messi, Shock, or like Son Young Min, um, Harry Kane. Really good finishes. I suppose one of the major underperformers who immediately comes to mind for me when someone asks me who's who's a bad finisher, uh, Gabriel Jesus is is a player who, who typically underperforms. Um, since he moved to the Premier League, since his first full season, he's he's scored about thirteen and a half goals less than expected. So if he had average finishing. He'd have scored about 14 goals more, which is wow. quite heavy to be fair for the strike. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I think as well, within that, you've got to think the value of each of those individual XG chances and as they accumulate. And I think of some of the goals he scored for Arsenal, um, some of the really ones that probably actually had quite a high XG, which actually makes it worse, which means that he's probably missed quite a few more low-value chances than, than you'd initially suggest from those stats. So... I th- yeah, it's a difficult gonna, uh, one. And I think the on. other thing for, for Zezus, particularly when he was a City, is, is that he was able to kind of be enveloped into the overall behemoth. So they didn't really, uh, those misses weren't damaging. Whereas now at Arsenal, they probably will be a little bit more so. And for Nunes, they may well be so, particularly in that period where Salah's not around. Yeah, it's 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 one of them talking points that will will always be there because ev- everyone naturally and rightly so to an extent associates, um, you know, a deadly a deadly clinical edge with with a proper striker with a, with a number nine mm. and, and Nunes, eventually will have to start like being a bit more efficient, I suppose, with his with his finishing for Liverpool, um, but as long as he gets the number of chances he's getting, I'm convinced it will be a matter of time before. You know that line where people talk about waiting for a bus and then three, <laughs> yeah. three come at once? It's, it's going to be one of them, mate, I'm telling you. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Um, but if, if we round up with, with title chat, mm. how are we feeling now? It's a, it's a weird feeling, isn't it, watching City uh, struggle, I suppose? It is. Um... 
It's it feels a little bit like the Scooby Doo ghosts when the city is struggling in December though. It's one of it's like they, the 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 narrative wants you to be scared, but you know you really shouldn't be. And or should excited, should I say, and I know you really shouldn't be. Um we've seen them struggle at this period in the season before. I cast my mind back to literally twelve months ago. But uh, again, another shout out to Andrew Beasley. They haven't lost or they haven't not won for four games since twenty seventeen. That's not normal. This is not normal. And I think in a strange way for Manchester City, the fact that they are four big games, um, Chelsea, um, Liverpool, Spurs, and now uh, Aston Villa, the fact that they have gone four big games and they haven't won any of them, that's a big shock to them. Normally, when they lose, they lose here and there. They lose where they've taken the eye off the ball, your Crystal Palaces, your Wolveses. Uh they normally, when they're being matched against a big team, they will normally be able to go toe-to-toe with them and they will assert their dominance. And for them to not be able to do that once out of this run of four is a shock. When you add into the fact they've still got to go to the Club World Cup, which even if they win it, and they probably will win it easily, it's still a disruption. It's still an extra game that you've got to fit in somewhere else in the season. So there is... Other elements still to come where that gap could widen. However, <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne that's, that's has become been a bit, of a, a bit of a signature take of yours, you know, the, the, the mold Stuart. However, <laughs> well, however. it's better than literally or, or fortress or whatever you want to call it. No, I like it, mate. I like it. <laughs> but as I was saying, um, Kevin De Bruyne was named in the squad for the Club World Cup, which means that even if he's not necessarily back to fitness, he isn't far away. We all know the City are traditionally better in the second half of the season. And that run of 12 wins in a row that they've gone on over the last three or four seasons has got them over the line. We all still believe they technically do have that in them. But all of that said, I think for Liverpool and for Arsenal, you can't worry about all of that. All you've got to do is get yourself into as strong a position as possible so when the City do start coming back, You've got enough of a lead that they can't crawl you all the way back. I think that's the way to win this title race. Well, their performance against Aston Villa in particular was was shocking, really. Uh, two shots, mate. Two shots for the Pep Guardiola team was outrageous, and and they didn't they didn't post a single one after the eleventh minute. No, I mean when I when I tuned in, they were absolutely getting battered. Uh, Really, really mad one to watch, to be fair. And they do have a lot of injuries or, or absences, if you want. Rodri weren't mm-hmm. playing. He's key to everything. Um, you just touched on there that the Club World Cup is coming up, which is going to be a big um, kind of distraction, if you want, for them, even though it's, I think it's a worthwhile competition. But uh, mm-hmm. I think it will distract them from Premier League exploits, though. Um, so I think usually... The worry that I've got with City around this period is this kind of run usually results in Guardiola locking himself in his bedroom for about 48 hours with a tactics board, um, <laughs> ending up with hair like Einstein and, and coming out with the tactical solution, mate. Um, and he always comes up with something that just changes the landscape completely and then City go and win 48 games in a row. This time, I'm not sure it's a tactical problem. I think they still have legs in the initial system that you've established with Haaland and the kind of box midfield thing and that. I think this is more just 
and this is going to sound very cliche, very da, but I do think there's elements of um, hunger, you know, a bit of a lack of hunger in there. Um, I do think they're lacking a bit of quality in comparison to previous years who are considering they've lost on the one. De Bruyne hasn't really played this season. Roddy didn't play. Um, you know, they've had a, a, a few absences in that sense and they've brought in Doku, who we've touched on on this show, really dangerous, but very st- still very raw, especially defensively. Matthias Nunes looks like he's not establishing himself yet. Same with Kovacic. Both of them started on the bench yesterday. Mm. Um, with with Akanji and Stones starting as a, a midfield two bad looks of it. You know, two yeah. two centre backs really. Um so the the, the definitely I, I'm I'm more confident than I ever have been that they're not gonna win it this season. But that is still not that confident. <laughs> if you know if you I know mean, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think about how long it took us to actually finally admit we were going to win the league when we were 25 points clear and winning 27 out of 28 games or whatever. Like, we still were kind of thinking, well, you know, you know. So it's, not, it's understandable to always, like you say, be fearful of what's to come. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation for them to write because you say on one hand that when they've got Stones and Rodri and De Bruyne, then they're a very different team. But the fact is, is that they've been without Rodri quite a few times this season, a couple of times through stupidity on his part, and they've suffered every single time. So that means that the pressure on him is going to be ramped up massively. And towards the end of the season, I wonder if this becomes a tactic in the Champions League, by the way, teams are going to be targeting Rodri because one of the reasons that he was suspended was because he reacted to a bad tackle. And he put his hands in someone's face. Like, if if he does that again at the wrong time, and in the Premier League it will be a, a longer suspension for a second red card, then that could really be pivotal because they literally don't have a plan how to win games without him at the moment. And for all of Pep Guardiola's fantastic superstars, they've never been in a situation where you take one player out and the whole thing falls apart. And it kind of feels like that's where they are now without Rodri. So. That's definitely something that's new, something that may well come into the final reckoning. But yes, they are still capable of being a very, very good football team. And whoever beats them, if someone does, are going to have to be as close to their best as they could possibly be. Well, we have Arsenal at um, Anfield on the 23rd of December. So that will be a very interesting game. Yeah. Um, couple of days before that, three days before that, Liverpool have a Carabao Cup course final against West Ham. I'm pretty sure Arsenal have a free week. Mm-hmm. So that's not great. That's not ideal. Like, but uh we not we've seen Michael Arteta try to prepare for Anfield. And I think uh there's elements of overthinking in there. There's elements of uh, <laughs> you know, he's got he, he, he's driving himself mad, I think, a little bit like like Pep used to, to be honest. So hopefully that week will almost uh, be a problem for him really where he's just got so much time to stress over it yeah. but I don't know it's it's, it's going to be an interesting one it's going to be an interesting season I think it, I, I think it's still out of three teams even though Villa are flying uh, but it's, it's one to watch and yeah. uh, it's one we'll revisit next week as well Another, another thing about that um, little run of games that we've got um, the only reason we're playing West Ham is because they beat Arsenal so we could have been playing Arsenal twice in two games yeah but and we're playing, we're playing in the FA Cup. 
Yeah. And this is the thing. If you think about what I was saying before about Man City and the potential for them, even if they don't necessarily drop points, the fact that they're in the Club World Cup means that they'll be a game week behind. So they'll probably still be behind. So that FA Cup third round match will probably come when Arsenal and Liverpool are maybe clear at the top of the league. We don't know by how much, but will be the two main front runners for the title. And then you drop an FA Cup game into it. I, I can't wait for that, to be honest. I think, in a strange way, both managers will absolutely rather not have it. But as a fan, bring it on. Yeah, lots to play for. It would be really interesting if by the end of the season, it's kind of Klopp versus Arteta rather than Klopp versus Pep. Because in that situation, Klopp would be painted and Liverpool would be painted as the team who've been there and done it. Yeah. And Arsenal would be painted as the kind of newcomers, uh, which would be an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. But... We'll keep an eye on this anyway. We'll come back to it next week. I think we'll do an earlier pod next week on maybe the Tuesday because from Wednesday, I am uh, going away for a few days. Um, But yeah, we'll see what happens. But Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. A pleasure as always, my friend. We'll see you soon. And uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.